Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're still here. What brings me back? So three things happened in the last week that made me feel like I had to come back here and bring another little piece of the story together. So the first was I met my father during the week to do some errands. And during that time together, we just happened to go through a box or two of sort of um, unsorted pieces from his collection not not U2 related items but pieces of design work that Steve has collected for whatever reason usually you know usually it's connected to maybe some music he was listening to or a designer he liked but everything that came out of the box had a story and it really reinforced to me this idea of Steve's pure obsession with design and rock and roll design music design and I suddenly felt there's more to be shown here. And when I say shown, I, I mean that in a visual sense. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But on the other side of that story, there is a wonderful podcast I'm a regular listener, listener of called Three Castles Burning by the great Donald Fallon, which is a podcast centered around Irish history broken down into pure history, cultural history, societal history, subcultural history, and everything in between, and sometimes all at the same time. It's a really great way to get a snapshot of different aspects of Irish history. That's Tree Castles Burning. You find it where you find podcasts. McDonald was interviewing Jim Fitzpatrick, illustrator and, you know, all-round man of uh, creativity and, and great thoughts and Jim Jim is best known for his work as the illustrator on the Thin Lizzy sleeves as well as designing their their now iconic logo and in their chat they were just chatting about what it was like to try and break through as a 
countercultural artist, let's say, in the 60s and even early 70s. And it reminded me of a portion of our U2Y podcast that I actually removed because it felt like a bit superfluous to our core story, as interesting as it is. It may be of particular interest to, to Irish listeners, if you're out there, because it's it's Steve's um, first foray into the world of design in an Irish context, in, in living in Dublin as a young man, wanting to be a designer and to realise his, his passion and his dream. And um, that, that the, the pieces that I did leave in the main podcast were obviously the, the idea, the, the fact that my grandfather, my father's father was a pilot flying to New York often and would go to record shops and music and magazine stands to pick up the latest periodicals and the latest seven inch singles. And from there, my father had this incredible access to, to this subculture that we could not get in Ireland, much of which he still has in his collection. And then the third thing was just simply an email asking about Steve's, how Steve got into design, having not gone maybe the more traditional routes that are expected um, in more recent years. And so I have revisited what was effectively the first conversation that we ever had, where Steve talks through his time as a young man, becoming interested in design, rock and roll, Putting it in, con- in in the context of being in, in Ireland, I think, is important. So it's just a little extra piece for you. Um, once again, thank you so much for the kind messages which we continue to receive. Uh, just a gentle reminder that we are selling limited edition prints on Steve's website currently. That is stephenaverill.com forward slash store. These are taken from the... Joshua Tree album cover shoot trip to Death Valley in 1986. They're wonderful photographs, really beautifully printed by our master printer, Dominic Turner. And what I'm hoping to do on the back of this is to take what has essentially been a difficulty in folding down a visual conversation into an into a audio medium. I'd like to break back out into the visual medium as much as I can and over on Steve's Instagram, which is instagram.com forward slash Stephen Averill Design, is post some of these findings. Now, they're not you 2 related, but they're all tied into things that Steve was um, passionate about, was inspired by. And a lot of them are just rare and unique pieces that um, I, I think it's a shame that they're, that they're stored away in boxes. They need to be seen and enjoyed for what they are. So I'm going to run this through as it was, unedited, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for sticking with us once again. Spread the word. There's still more life in U2Y. Alrighty, mind yourselves. Okay, so before we talk about you too can we go back to your first and earliest memories of your interest in design and music and how they related to each other well um 
I suppose essentially I was a huge music fan um, going back to the age of uh, 13, sort of 1962, 63. And um, I... For some reason, I always knew that I wanted to do what was then termed commercial art. Um, the term graphic design wasn't something that was used in those days. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to sort of, and I thought the two areas that combined the music and graphics was um, in the album cover area and poster design and T-shirts and things like that, music-related imagery. So that's really what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get a, do that or go about it. In fact, um, I was, in 1969, I went to London. Um and I lived there for um, a few months uh, during the summer working in Boots the Chemist in Oxford Street, um, which was a kind of very strange time because the um, right outside the back door um, of Boots the Chemist, it, it led on to Carnaby Street. And Carnaby Street in the late 60s was a kind of hive of, of interesting places and little shops and, and people you'd, you'd meet. But um, I, I stayed there and during that time I went to a lot of Hyde Park concerts and concerts in the Roundhouse and other clubs and things like that and protest rallies in in, in Trafalgar Square, um, and uh, I was sort of offered a full time job working in Boots and that would have probably changed my life quite dramatically. But I decided I wanted to come back to Dublin to try and explore the graphic design side of things because even then, back then, I knew that most of the people, be they musicians or graphic designers. Uh, who were interested in that in that subject had left the country and gone to gone to London, which made sense. I really wanted to kind of establish some kind of practice in in Dublin um, and do that. But prior to that, uh, I had been in advertising. I saw it, I'll go track backtrack a little. After I left, um, uh, and after I finished the leaving certificate and came back to Dublin, I went to do a the only course I could find in what was called basic design was in Dunleary Tech and it was a real ramshackle course that didn't really have any solid it was very very basic in the extreme and and my those who attended the, the course with me were a real mix including some guys who went on to become um, real art painters and other, other sculptors and other people did various different things but it, it taught me a little bit about how to approach to put a portfolio together and that's what I did after I, I put a portfolio together but um, the only job that I could get advice on to do was to go and work in a phototype setting uh, plant in Dublin, the first one that was there. I think it was called the European Printing Corporation run by Rupert Murdoch. And I, I stayed, did that for a year and I absolutely hated it. It was nothing to do with graphic When design. you say phototype setting, well, what does that entail? Well, that, what, they, what that meant at the time was everybody else in, in, in typesetting was using hot metal which was, you know, using hot metal machine, which I did go and learn how to use in in uh, sort of, you had to go to college at nighttime sometimes to do these little courses. And I went and looked at that and saw how it was done. But the phototype setting uh, course or job was, they would produce reams and reams of reams of this type on very, very large pieces of film, almost A4 sized film with endless rolls of it. And our job was, it was essentially scientific journals was what they were producing for the American universities. So you, mm. you 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 sat all day long at this big table, which was a big light box, which had a grid on it, and you you would you would cut. Basically, the the you would have to check each page as it came in, and the page would be numbered underneath. You cut the page out, put it onto the board, uh, and made sure that it it fit the grid. That it, but what was happening all the time as as it was a new. Uh, innovation is that the type was continually going off the grid. They was losing line space and things like that. So you'd have to go in, 
uh, with a scalpel or a, a cutter and cut line by line until it fitted back onto the grid. And it was yeah. absolutely frustrating because it, being scientific journals, you would get eight, nine, ten pages done and you'd come to a theorem and you could not have a theorem split between two pages. So you'd have to go back, get a new grid put onto the onto Lightbox that was maybe a fraction smaller. So And then go back line by line and, and, and put everything uh, back up a line so that the theorem would actually fit on the page. So naturally, it just drove me nuts. So I ended up joining the crazy gang, which were the people in the corner of the factory who simply proofed the stuff, who just sat there all the long, long proofing these pages for, for the the proofreaders to read. Um, but the break came was um, the the other guys that have been there a few years more, longer than me said, look, we, we go to this tech in, in Bolton Street and we, we have this crazy teacher once a week by the name of Phil Walsh. He's from Arcs Advertising. And he said, you really like him because he's nuts. And he, so I went in one evening and met Phil and uh, got on very well with him. And I went back then for the next five or six weeks with him even though I wasn't in part of the course at all and um, we talked a lot and we he, he the first person who kind of explained to me what what was happening and he was in in advertising as opposed to design as such so uh, what happened was Phil then offered me a job working in Arcs Advertising who were then the kind of top creative agency in Dublin and um, so I went in and took an even took a salary cut to get the job from where I from where I was but I worked then with him for three or four years as his assistant just really just standing by his desk and sharpening pencils, doing all the things that a, a real junior does till eventually he trusted me with full jobs and I started to doing full jobs and copywriting. But all along, I kind of wanted to do graphic design and occasionally got an opportunity to do it. Well, it seems to me that you you very relatively quickly realized the difference between sort of cold a cold approach to design, which is a bit more technical and, and assembly line versus the creative side or the thinking side, which was maybe what advertising um, brought to the table. Yeah, pretty much so, because you were, um, what was great about it was you were pretty much doing a different job all the time. You would be handed something like I was working on accounts, including Cleary's and, and uh, Harp Lager and various things. So you'd, you, you'd be brought into discussion groups. So we, we work as a, a team of three. Uh, Phil, a guy called Joe, and myself. Uh, Joe was sort of the middle guy, and we we would discuss a lot of ideas and how to do things, and and uh, that was great fun because it was ever changing and always trying to put a, an approach. Now I have to say, when I was working in Arcs, um, Barry Devlin and Eamon Carr from Horselips and Charles O'Connor were all working in the agency at the time as well. It was a strange situation because unlike the uh, London art school um, community where a lot of the people like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and various people came from, uh, anybody I knew that was uh, into music in a way was in the advertising scene um, and they, they worked together in that. And then, you know, I, I kind of built myself up in reputation because I started writing copy lines and, you know, getting doing various things. But it reached a point after about three years where um, uh, Phil said to me, you know, you really need to move on because they're not going to, you, you, you never really got a raise in, in the advertising business unless you moved to another agency, which is what I did. I, I, I moved from there to Kenny's Advertising and, and I, I worked there for a few years, or sorry, it wasn't Kenny's, it was O'Kennedy Brindley's. And from O'Kennedy Brindley's, I met a guy called Frank O'Hare who worked with him in his uh, little group of people and he moved to um, 
uh, Kenny's advertising and I moved with him. Um, and that really was uh, where I began to do, uh, learn an awful lot about everything. You know, you, you because there was no design consultancies per se, you would be given design jobs as well as advertising jobs to do. And the point about it is too, it was all bench artwork. There was no computers involved. So everything you did, you had to draw out the boards with the, with the templates and the correct sizes and everything else and work out your typesetting. You had to, on tracing paper, work out how the type would be sent off to a typesetter and come back from the typesetter and had to fit around a shape or whatever it does. This experience of essentially problem solving was really helpful for your kind of future career. And also as, as odd an industry as advertising is and as odd and I guess sometimes clinical an industry as advertising can be, you know, graphic design is effectively advertising music or, or the brand is the band. So it's, you can see the connection and also you and also you can see how you connected with musical people within the advertising industry and a lot of the advertising folks such as Jim Fitzpatrick uh, Barry Devlin you know we're all creative outside thinkers or and artists in their own right yeah it certainly was interesting because of the of the way uh, the situation worked and you would they also had a photographic studio and um when I joined, the, one of the guys working in the photographic studio was uh, Spud Murphy, who recently passed away. And Spud went on to work at BP Fallon and work with Sounds magazine and, and took pictures, the famous uh, T-Rex cover for, you know, um, Electric Warrior and, and people like that. And he worked for Sounds and worked with John Lennon and things like that. So he was a yeah. really interesting character down there. But there was a lot of freedom to, to, to explore as many ideas as you could. And as a junior, you were given a little bit of freedom to sort of come up with ideas and, and present it to everybody and do it. So I learned how to present uh, to, to clients and I learned how to do various things like that. But I think at the end, I became slightly disillusioned that it seemed to me that we were find, trying to find some unique way of selling something that people didn't really want in the first place. Um, yeah, so it, it it seemed to be a deceitful approach to the whole thing, whereas I, I saw at that time design as something a little bit more honest and straightforward. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I mean, it's it's obvious from your Instagram and from talking to you and being your son and, you know, you telling stories about how you had a thirst for music um, in the late 60s, um, that you were surrounded by, uh, for want of a better term, a rock and roll aesthetic. Um, and visuals were as important to you as the music. And I think you, you, know, you tell me stories about seeing um, Pink Floyd and writing letters to their visuals guy doing the slides and the hot oil projections and stuff you obviously had a had as much of an interest in the presentation visually as you did sonically at that point 
Yeah, I mean, in truth, I did um, go to guitar lessons for a while and realised that um, musically I, it wasn't going to work. I just you didn't have to, that. <laughs> I, I did. I went to guitar lessons and learned to play one song and then realised it wasn't going to work and then decided, oh, maybe the bass would be a better instrument to play with. Even got less strings mm-hmm. to do it. So I started playing bass in a local Malahide band for a while. And then, you know, it was quite obvious that my musical ability wasn't such. So I started to work with them doing light shows um and that's where i started doing liquid lights and things like that and i really didn't know this ins and outs and the secrets of doing a light show so i i was corresponding i was doing a fanzine as well around around this time called freep which is for free press and it was uh, i worked with people from friends magazine and zigzag magazine and it was the editor of zigzag i i wrote to and i said do you know anybody who does liquid light shows um might be able to give me a few tips and he put me in this guy called Pippin um, who did I think he I'm not sure whether he worked with Hawkwind but he certainly worked with a lot of the bands around that time and uh, I think somewhere in my collection I still have his letter that he sent back and he was completely honest maybe because I was a different country he gave me a, a long long letter that told me all the secrets of what you did to, to do Liquid Light Show properly so I started working with this local um, Malahide band called The Unkind and and we used to go to various gigs and the, the scene in Dublin was quite different then because before the discos took over every week they could they could play around Dublin for six months and never repeat the venues because every mm. hall or tennis club or whatever had a live band at that, that stage and, and they did mm. a lot of gigs and they were a kind of R&B based sort of them pretty things or, sure. or stones type of band and we did that for, for, for a good while and then a friend of mine uh, Tom King who, who was in Dunley with me we did it together and we eventually got it to where we were kind of getting booked to do relatively big shows we did one show in a cinema and i can't remember where, where the cinema was where we were up in the projection room with two liquid light projectors and a, and a, and a movie projector and we had great fun and uh, one of the, the tricks in the whole thing was you um use this little gas little gas canister with a little burner on the top which you you, you use to heat slides up so that the, the liquids in the slides would bubble and as we were doing this light show, I said to Tom, have a look at that. That looks really fantastic. And he leaned over uh, beside me. I not realizing that I was still holding the torch that was lit until his hair caught fire, which <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't very <laughs> pleased about. But suddenly he had half a uh, half of long hair on one, on one side and a very short burnt hair on the, on, on the opposite <laughs> side. But, um, well, it's true. Is it true that your forays and career in um, liquid lights came to an abrupt end when all your gear was stolen? That's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, unlike other, this relates again to the to the radios. When we started the radios, I started to try and use lights in a much more interesting way. Not so much the liquid lights, but certainly projections and uh, strobes and things like that. And uh, when the band moved to London, we took the entire lighting equipment with us so that we would have it mm. and one night the van was broken into and the gear and including all the, li- the lights was was stolen so that sort of brought an end to that particular yeah. passage of, of, of making music or well, making that, um, sounds that the aforementioned letter uh definitely still exists because i've certainly seen it you've shown it to me um and i think maybe it could be interesting i'm, I'm not sure how yet but as as things are referenced in, uh, throughout, maybe we can put a link up on your website and we can scan some things so we can people can take a look at what we're talking about. Because um, it is fundamentally a 
you know, it's a visual topic, so it'd be nice to have some reference points. Yeah, um, well, it's, you, as you know, it's quite different these days. Everything, light shows now are sort of digital and, and, and back projections and all those kind yeah. of things. There's very few people actually doing a physical light show in the way that it was done in the in the 60s. Um, mm. And uh, funnily enough, recently, um, a friend of mine, Matt Purcell, who's a, a musician himself, uh, and I talked about it, and he managed to find two um, projectors online. Yeah. of the old school ones and he has those and we intend at some point to to when we get a moment to get together to to reenact those and maybe put on a couple of light shows um great yeah. in the old school way i wonder can you recall the first record sleeve that made you think that you wanted to do that was there something that stood out and not just as a oh i love this aesthetic or i enjoy this for a piece of art but like i want to do this myself um well obviously because i was working in the industry and and, and um, the first record cover i ever did uh was not particularly successful it was a charity album for a choir and i tried to um I, I worked in the process, therefore, so I was doing the rough design, and I had an I had an art worker who was doing the artwork, um, and I wanted a particular illustrator to 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 illustrate the cover, and they couldn't afford him, so the the guy in the in the finished art department did his version of it, which was not particularly successful, but it, it was fine. It was a first step, and it was to see it finally printed. And uh, the interesting thing about those days, to a large degree, was because you're working on a board. Um, you quite often didn't really know what was going to turn out at the end of the day because you were only guessing that this particular color you've picked for for the typeface and this particular color you picked for the background are actually going to work together because you 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 had no system of seeing everything was in black and white with with tracing overlays with the colors marked on them so there was a little bit of hit and miss sometimes these things turned out to be great the mistakes in it really worked and other times um they were complete disappointment you just couldn't read type and on against the color in whatever way it was so you learned as you went along and and we we became quite adapted doing that and working out how we how we would do those so i did for a long time i suppose when i started doing sleeves i worked with most of the, of the irish bands of that era um to do it but as you say it's it's um what was the inspiration for sleeves i had a great um love of people like um, Stanley Mouse and and Rick Griffin who did covers for the Grateful Dead and things like that because some of the letter lettering is absolutely amazing considering it's all everything is hand drawn there's no computer aid in what in what they did but to take it to a basic level I loved um the covers the early Beatles early Stones because they sort of uh portrayed a band that looked like a band, like everybody in the band. Sometimes these days you see bands where one guy's got short hair, one guy's got long hair, one guy is in a totally different dress sense or whatever. But in those days, um, the Stones, you know, the early Beatles, like Meet the Beatles and things like that, they became benchmarks. They, they were the things you sort of tried to do. So what I what I realized early on as well, it, the importance of working with a photographer who understood what you wanted to do. And that mm. became... In the, in the creation of sleeves, the right photographer in, and the right direction for what was needed to be done was as important as everything else that was going mm. on. You know, you can, it's interesting that, that you, you know, the images you were attracted to were very band centric, whereas the first U2 record was, didn't feature them in the cover. So you, so it's, so essentially if I'm right, it's, it was a sort of just like a natural um, organic uh, evolution of what you were doing, combined with a deep set love of the of the graphic art that accompanied the records that you loved. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, I I, I kind of knew from a very early age that this is what I wanted to do. Um, trying to find, I mean, it was very difficult. Was the only person I knew um, who did sleeve design in Ireland uh, to any degree of sophistication was Jim Fitzpatrick. 
Mm. Um, and Jim was a very stylized designer. He's he's still making great artwork, but it, you know it, his his work with Thin Lizzy is kind of iconic in in so many ways, um, in different ways. Because um, Jim was an illustrator and and a painter, which I wasn't. I was a graphic designer. I didn't have great uh, illustration skills, but maybe if I had developed them earlier on. But once you get into once you got into advertising, you quickly learned that you know that you're, that's not your job. They would call in an illustrator or a photographer or whoever was needed to complete a piece of artwork you came up with the idea so that's yeah. really what what my inspiration was come up with the ideas for these things but i think maybe the idea of being a professional you know graphic designer for music you know might not have been the most obvious thing i suppose i mean or or, or was it or was it like did you see a career path strictly doing graphics for music or did you always feel like you'd have to kind of dip in and out of the two worlds of advertising and well what we did was um a point was reached when, um, in the agency business, uh, I mean, it, I, I suppose I should mention we went through some traumatic experiences. Kenny's advertising uh, was one day, uh, a Friday. Um, we I went into to work and uh, everybody was kind of a little bit sort of edgy or whatever. And, and at lunchtime, we were called into the, uh, the managing director's office, all the designers, and said that the company was going into liquidation and. Uh, that we were told that we had to get to a certain bank by a certain time, two o'clock was the deadline, if we wanted to get our wages from that particular month. Mm. Um, so it was like the fall of Saigon. There was people's mm. legs sticking out of car boots and things like that, heading down the docks to, 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 to... And it was a bank that was way down the docks rather than somewhere we were used to going. But anyway, um, I managed to get um, my, um, my my week's month's wages there for that. But we were then out on our own. We were, we were redundant and it was... Uh, a, tr- a tricky time because you know I I never liked to be out of work and and uh, having to report to to the Dole office in in um, Gardner Street you know was was painful, so my one of my former bosses set up a new company called um, the Creative Department which was a sort of a consultancy that added uh, worked for other agencies when they when they had over or over capacity or whatever they wanted to do. Um, and I worked there for a few years and I enjoyed it. And then the people uh, that I worked with were good. And then I decided I got an offer from a company called um, the Helm Partnership to become their creative director. Hmm. So uh, I went and spoke to them and I said, well, I will certainly uh, take on this job if you give me the opportunity to set up a, a separate design consultancy at the same, at the same time. Uh, okay. And I, I did that. Uh, it was um, a nightmare. Um, hmm. I probably didn't see you. Uh, or, or your mom or your brother for, for a long time because we were working seven days a week to try and keep the two practices going. And we were told that in the first year of the design consultancy, we will probably lose 20 grand or something like that mm-hmm. as, a, as a set of company. We actually didn't. We didn't lose any money at all. We, we, we just worked so hard to get the whole thing established. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into the design side of things. So I, I eventually they agreed and, and uh um, they took a shareholding in the design company and I left the advertising side of it behind and then concentrated entirely on the music industry. Now, by this this point, um, I had been working with U2 and other, other other bands. So we had built up a sort of reputation in the, the music industry, entertainment industry. And that's really what the bones of our work when we set up the consultancy was. It was all in the music industry, entertainment industry. So what, can you put a year on that roughly, a date? Uh, I would think it was probably in uh, the mid to late eighties, so eighty five, eighty six. Okay, so so um, so just getting our timeline straight here. You know, Boy came out in eighty. So yeah. 
this is concurrent with that and beyond that. Beyond that, um, because I certainly remember um, designing the war cover when I was working in the advertising agency and, and, and having a lot of being given out to for having these scruffy young men coming into the reception area to talk about work that was being done, not in the agency, but, but you know, as, as a freelance job. And that's it. Thank you for listening. That is just a little extra, little piece to add on to the story, which is where it all began, effectively. Thanks once again for listening. This has been U2Y, bonus episode. Don't forget to check out stevenaveril.com and follow Steve on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash stevenaverildesign. If you are soon to descend on Las Vegas, do have fun. Say hi to Mephisto for us. Over and out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.